The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's just start with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we do thank you for calling us together this morning. We recognize that we are here by your calling, that you've drawn us together, or that you've, brought, you've taken people from different um, cultures, Lord, um, even being from such a small place as southern New Hampshire, from different uh, walks of life, Lord, from different venues and jobs, and you have brought us together as one family to serve you, to worship you, to praise you, to learn of you. I pray that that's what happens this morning. And Lord, uh, we recognize that you have done what you uh, needed to do to justify us, Lord, and now you are sanctifying us. And I pray that you'd help us to realize that through the pastors this morning. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's go ahead and read the passage. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each receives his wages according to his labor. For you are God's fellow workers, you are God's field God's building. Paul is taking us from last week's passage, and I'm going to give a quick summation of just what we discussed in 1 Corinthians. And he's kind of transitioning us from the truth that Jacob was able to teach us from the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 into another truth. And he does that by just starting out with three words, but I, brothers. So everything considered from last week He's saying, but I have to kind of stop, I have to pause, I have to take a moment, and I have to address a totally another topic, totally different issue, and really uh, be talking to another group of people. Uh, if you think back over the sermons that we've heard through 1 Corinthians, which I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have, I think this is probably the best series we've done so far, if I can, if I can throw that out there. Um, this week excluded, maybe. Bill will tell me afterwards whether or not that's true. <laughs> By the way, there's slides today, Bill. Last time I preached, Bill came up. First thing he said is, you didn't have slides. You needed slides. I needed slides. You went way too fast. I needed slides. <laughs> Signed, sealed, delivered. I have slides. I appreciate the honesty. Bill and I are on the same page. I tell him when he's weird. He tells me when I'm <laughs> wrong. Yeah. Shouldn't have said it. So chapter one, Paul begins his ladder that is largely a rebuke with thankfulness. And in doing so, he recognizes the people that he's about to rebuke as the family of God. He recognizes them as the family of God. He recognizes the grace of God in their lives. And he encourages them and us to seek out that same grace in work in the hearts of the other people around them. I hope you remember that sermon. That stood out to me so much. Jacob encouraged us in the church, among all the problems that we have as a family, as among all the differences that we have, among all the issues that we bring to the table, because we are humans, 
that we try to find the work that God is doing in each other's lives. He continues in chapter 1, calling them out for the unnecessary division amongst them and reminds them that the gospel community only thrives in submission to Jesus. He then reminds them that the very leadership that they fanboyed over finds success in its weakness as a reminder to point others to the cross of Christ. And what, that, again, another good sermon where Jacob explained to us, really through the Spirit, and Paul explains as well, that even the greatest teachers, even the greatest Christian leaders, all the people that we can think back over that have done things for us, everybody in here probably has a pastor that they will look up to for the rest of their lives, other than Jacob, um, but including Jacob too. We all have those people. Uh, and they are nothing more than weak vessels, weak tools that God uses to instill something in us and point us to the cross of Christ. In chapter 2, he begins to break down for us that we as a community can be spiritual, that a spiritual community is one that's ruled by the Spirit of God, and that we have the mind of Christ, which makes the gospel and the cross make sense to us in contrast to how non-believers would, would view that. Paul says it's a stumbling block. It's foolishness to those that don't have the Spirit. It doesn't make sense. The natural person in reading in chapter 2 does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they, are, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Which brings us to chapter 3. But. That's how he ends chapter 2. We have the mind of Christ. But, not the first word I want to hear after Paul says that, um, but that's what he says. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. What is he saying? How can we have the mind of Christ and be the people of the flesh? It all boils down to sanctification. A uh, word we will go over a few times, I will explain it the best of my ability. And Paul, by the Spirit, is teaching us something about that word. Now, it's, a, it's a word that's found in the Bible. Uh, it's a big word. You can understand it a few different ways. Um, it is to become more like Christ, to be cleaned, to be made holy. Uh, I'm going to probably repeat this later, so I'm jumping ahead in my notes, but I'm going to say it now anyways, because uh, I like this. R.C. Sproul said that it is um, the Christian working out what God has worked in. You can think about it that way. So the main point of this passage is going to be that we must work so that our spiritual community, our church, is built by God alone. Not by our own efforts, but it's built by God alone. And so we're going to ask a question, and that question is going to be, how can we, as Christians, work to either divide the house of God in the flesh or to build the house of God in the spirit? Let's read those first four verses again. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For, when I, for one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, 
Are you not being merely human? And Paul and Apollos, just for those who may not know or don't remember, um, Paul is the person writing this book. He's writing this letter. He's sending it to this church that abides in the city of Corinth. He's referencing Apollos, who's another teacher. Um, And so if you remember all the way back to chapter 1, when Jacob was talking about division in the church through this passage, you had people in the church of Corinth who were bragging or boasting about the person that baptized them or the person that taught them or the person that helped them grow. You know, I'm of Paul. I'm of, I'm of, I'm of Apollos. And then, you know, that person that kind of pulls one over and everybody else. Well, I'm of Jesus, you know. Um, and he's saying, he's, he's calling that back into remembrance. He's bringing that up again because it's still the same thing dividing them in the same letter. Like, nothing's changed. They didn't get the first part of the letter and the second part of the letter. This is still the issue. And he's bringing that in because he is going to use that circumstance. This thing keeps falling off my head, guys. I'm sorry. Um, he's going to use that circumstance to teach them about this kind of third class of people he's introducing. So, so far, we've talked about the natural man, the non-believer. We've talked about the spiritual, the person who has been regenerated by the Spirit through Christ's death on the cross, the person that is growing in Christ, he is killing his sin, he is growing, he's moving forward. And Paul looks at the church of Corinth and says, I can't call you either of those things. You don't fall into either of those two categories nice and cleanly. Paul understands that, that is, those two categories, while they're like the two big ones, they're kind of the way we think about things. Um, when we're commanded in Scripture, we're commanded to not be natural but to be spiritual. He understands that that might be an overly simplistic look at the human life, and that a third category is necessary, and that's what this whole passage is about, is this third category. And it's huge. I would, I would submit that this is the biggest category in the church today, at large. It's kind of sad to think of it that way, but it's the truth. I fall into this category more often than not. It's kind of a category that you can, you can fluidly move from nat- or, um, fleshly to spiritual, this category of the fleshly Christian. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that once you attain spirituality, that you stay there forever, but you can kind of flux into this whole natural disposition, or not natural, sorry, this fleshly disposition from time to time. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Paul has just spoken about the mature and called them spiritual. He's contrasted them to the natural people, and the people of Corinth do not fit into these categories. They are believers who are not mature nor spiritual. So we have to ask, who are these people? Who are they? Who are they in the church today? Am I one of them? Would be the biggest question we have to ask ourselves. I didn't put this quote up there, but John Piper says of this text that it's both a hope and a warning. He says, I think it's intended to be a tender-hearted hope for stumblers and bumblers and imperfect Christians striving towards maturity. And I think it's intended to be a warning to casual drifters in the Christian life. People who just kind of come in and go side to side, and there's no real growth, there's no real attaining, there's no real listening, there's no real movement. They just kind of drift side to side. And that would be the fleshly Christian. They could be in either one of those places. They could, they could just be stumbling and bumbling, and they could be imperfect in their walk, but they could also be someone who just kind of comes in and, and goes with the flow, goes with the motion. But there's a few things that we're going to look at. The first one, I just want, I want us to understand one very important thing about these people. And then the, the, the next two things that we're going to look at 
under this point are just going to be to answer that, the question of how can we work in the flesh and divide God's house? How is that possible for a Christian? It's not something that should be said of a Christian, but how is it possible for a Christian to do that? But before we get into that part, um, maybe the more discouraging part, hopefully it, it becomes an encouragement for us, I do want to start with the very fact that one of the first thing Paul says about these people that he's writing to is that they are in Christ. They are in Christ. And I think we have to start at that place. Um, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He doesn't leave that off. He doesn't just say, you're a bunch of babies. He says, your baby's in Christ. You're there. That means that in the logical order of salvation, how, how salvation breaks down, that the work of Christ on the cross has been applied to their lives already. They're justified. They are seen by God with Christ standing in their place. And legally, we talked about a legal term in chapter 2. That is done. It's accomplished. And I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that the group of people that we're talking about today, the group of people we are considering whether or not we fall into every once in a while, if not more often than not, are Christians. They're in Christ. They have that as true about them, and that's not going to change. It is union in Christ. That's what he means. And uh, we are going to go to Romans 8, possibly later on in the sermon, and it's going to flush that out a little bit more. Um, Jacob happened to visit that passage last week, so it should be somewhat familiar to us. But this is, this is our launching point. We are talking about Christians. We're talking about people who are saved. And I hope you find that encouraging. If you are going to be a baby this morning, if you're going to be an infant in your understanding, take comfort in the fact that you are Christ's child, that you're his baby, that all the mistakes, all the dirty diapers and burp cloths that come with that belong to him, and he wants them. Now, to answer the other question then, really the main point is, how, what we're thinking through right now is, how can we, as Christians, come to a point where we're working in the flesh and dividing God's house? Well, first thing we're going to notice, we've already talked about this, while you are in Christ, you are still an infant in this category. You're still a baby. And I shouldn't say you. We are still infants. We are still babies. Verse 1, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Verse 2 through 3, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready. You are still of the flesh. Paul is saying here that the Corinthians' inability to handle deeper teaching, the deeper things of God's word, is directly tied to their immaturity. And this is kind of a hard thought to get over because I don't want anyone in here to think this morning that because you can't break down the Trinity for me in perfect systematic order, or that you can't um, explain maybe all the benefits of Christ's death on the cross as they apply to you from your birth all the way through to your death and afterwards, that you were not a mature Christian. That's not what Paul is saying. You don't need a degree in theology to be considered a mature Christian. So hopefully you can take some encouragement in that. Um, what he is saying is there has to be a point 
in your Christian walk, on your journey to becoming a spiritual Christian, that you get past the very first thing you learned. <laughs> where, where a pastor, or a teacher, a leader in the church can get up and he can dive a little bit deeper into the implications of what the cross of Christ has done in your life uh, without you passing out from boredom because you're just satisfied that it worked for you. Uh, there is so much more to say about, and we're not going to go into all of it today. That's not the point of the sermon. Uh, I would say just take this as an encouragement and, 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 and maybe even a reproof to say that I'm going to, as a follower of Jesus, try to dig in a little bit deeper as my journey with Christ continues. I'm not going to be satisfied um, with the emotion, just like I'm not going to expect other people who are maybe more logical or intellectual to be satisfied without emotion. Both those things are, we worship God in spirit and in truth. But I'm not going to ride one emotion, let that fall, and then just wait for the next emotion to pick me up. I'm going to allow the deep things, the deep truths, the important truths of God's word to feed me on a daily basis. And if emotion is a response that happens at that, and it will be a response that happens, great. But I'm not going to just be carried about by every little thing that I hear. And that's what he's describing here. Ephesians chapter 5 describes these. I'm sorry, I said Ephesians. Galatians chapter 5, I believe is where it is. No, it's Ephesians 4. I'm sorry. Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. My Bible's too small. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from, the, from whom the whole body, that's the church, our spiritual community, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. Yes, Emotion, love, uh, wonder, awe, as we experienced hopefully during the song service this morning, is 100% necessary in the, in the spiritual body of the church, in the spiritual life of the church. But if we're having an emotional reaction, we, we, sing, we sing phrases, very small phrases even this morning, just as like God, the three in one. And, and, and the, the theological implications, the deep truths behind that phrase, if you take the time and I'm not talking about, you need to learn this now. I'm talking about if you take the next five years and just try to unpack that in your mind by being steadily involved in Scripture, it is going to carry you to emotional heights that just singing a song never might be able to. Because the next time you sing that song, more gets unpacked from what you've taught yourself throughout the week. More gets unpacked from what you've learned about Christ throughout the week, learned about God throughout the week. What Paul is saying, he says, I want to bring these things to you but I'm not able yet. As, as, a, as, a, as a fleshly Christian, you're just not there. And in large part, that's completely okay. If you're a new believer in here today, not talking about you. If you're not a believer, you're exploring. Um, if you're just not religious, that's okay. He's not, you're not, this is not what he's talking about. He is talking about the Christian that has been a Christian for a while and has kind of just floated through, like Ephesians 4 was talking about. They're carried about. They're tossed to and fro. 
Their immaturity is tied to their inability to handle deeper teaching. And this applies to church life, because if you're getting tossed back and forth with every little thought that comes in, and then you're walking in the church on Sunday morning, you're bringing those things with you. Um, you're carrying the spirit of those things with you. They're, they're, the, the doctrine affects your emotion, it affects your actions, and those things get carried in with you. The other thing he says about this group of people is that they're self-centered and self-serving. And we heard this when, when Jacob first talked about the whole division between teachers. Verse 1, he says, he says, I can't address you as spiritual, but as people of the flesh. In verse 3 and 4, he carries on and says, and even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For the while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? He's saying, you are a Christian who acts totally natural. You're not completely natural. God's done that supernatural work in your life, but you're acting as if that never happened, at least at times. Galatians 5, 14 through 15 is going to apply this for us, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on this point. Galatians 5, 14 through 15. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. This one phrase is the completion of the entire law. It's the summation of the entire law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now I'm going to stop right there before I read the next verse. And I just want to say that I am thankful to be in a church where I see this being lived out. Um, where I see people caring for each other. Uh, meeting the needs of each other. Looking into our community and finding out where we can meet needs. Uh, the, the mission of the church is to carry the gospel to people, to, to, to bring good news to people, and we accomplish that in so many ways at this church. Uh, Brian's not here this morning, so I'm going to brag on him, but every time he posts in our church Facebook page, Facebook page about uh, meeting for the, uh, is it called Feed the Children? Food for Children? Thank you. I've never been, so shame on me, but it, I, I am awed that he would take three hours of an extremely busy day and take his two sons to a freezing cold parking lot. And I think, Carolyn, you've gone as well, right? You go there to, okay. All the same. Anna goes, people go. Our church is involved in that community. A freezing cold parking lot to pass out food for people that need it. It floors me. I don't want to do that on a Saturday morning. The idea of doing that yesterday morning after Alex and I have been basically going from 6 a.m. till 11 o'clock p.m. And it, 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 I am in awe at the grace of God at work in people's lives who are willing to do that. And I want to get to that point. I want that burden. I want to serve. Maybe it's not that, um, because I'm a baby when it comes to the cold, having lived here my whole life. Uh, but I want to have that sense. I want to have that burden that Brian has. Brian is, and again, I'm only saying this because he's not here. Brian is completely sold out on the idea of being a part of Manchester. And for having only lived here for like, well, I mean, prior, but he just moved back here a year or two ago. It's encouraging. It's convicting. 
Now, the burden is realizing the need. And Paul is illustrating this. That's not a self-centered thing. That is, that is an attribute, attribute of a spiritual Christian. And that's not the only thing. I mean, you can be a fleshly Christian and do those things. But he, that is not a self-centered or self-serving thing. So what is he saying in this passage? Paul is saying that the very thing that you're trying to do to amp up your own spirituality in the eyes of other believers is fleshly. I, I love that passage towards the beginning. Paul's sarcasm just speaks to me in, in a way that most people can't. But like when, when they're bragging about this earlier in 1 Corinthians, um, and Paul's just like, yeah, I don't even remember baptizing you. Like, why are you bragging? Like, I don't remember you. And he's not saying that to amp himself up. It's just like, shame on you for using my name to look better to everybody else. Like, I remember baptizing this guy and that guy. The rest of you, it's just, it's, it's not something I'm keeping track of. Like, why are you using that? Like, who cares? And, and what they're doing is they're using that. They're using, uh, we're going rock climbing later this afternoon. They're using Paul and Apollos as like pegs to climb that wall to put themselves up there. This is not the work of a spiritual Christian. This is somebody who is taking very worldly and natural ideas, and they're, they're using that industry to advance themselves in the church. In King's Cross Church, I can speak to the testimony that it is not a place where we just pretend to be something that we're not. I don't get that in this church at all. I've been a part of churches my whole life. I grew up in a church where you had a checklist and that's what made you the good Christian, is you could just check off that checklist. Didn't really matter what I was doing Monday through Friday, as long as I was, everybody thought I was good, I was good to go. We don't pretend around here. I hope that's been your experience here. We don't pretend. We, we bring our burdens, we bring our weaknesses, we bring our, our difficulties, we bring our struggles. And they're pretty well an open book. We tend to know as a church when our church is struggling, and we don't try to hide that. Now, there's private things. I don't, I don't air my dirty laundry out for the entire church to see. But there are several people in this church I know I can go to when I'm struggling with something. No matter how embarrassing it is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how bad it makes me look. Because I know that they are going to find the grace of God in my life, accomplishing those things, solving those things, working through those things. And it's not going to be Jay the sinner, Jay the dirtbag, Jay the loser. It's going to be Jay the project that Christ has chosen. We have to move on, though. I said at the beginning of this, this is the, and we're doing this in transition here, so I am transitioning to my second point pretty quickly. I'm, I'm going to keep it moving, I promise. That this whole entire thing, this whole passage is focused on the idea of sanctification, of God taking us from one place to another, of his sovereign work bringing us into salvation. We get to join him. We're called to join him in our growth. Romans chapter 8. We're not going to go there for sake of time, but verses 18 through 30, great read if you want to do that later. He talks about the order of salvation. It's a logical order of salvation that we are called by God. He chose us. We are redeemed by God. He justifies us. We'll be glorified by God, perfected, not on this earth. That's after death glorified, resurrected, several words for that. 
and he says something at the beginning that fits sanctification into that process. And he says, we're being conformed. We're being formed to. We're being changed into the image of his son. We reflect Christ. R.C. Sproul says that sanctification is us working out what God has worked in, what he placed in us sovereignly, apart from our doing, in salvation and justification. We, in sanctification, get to walk through with him. We get to work that out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It lies in stark contrast to the fleshly Christian who works in their flesh to divide God's house. I'm going to use an illustration here, but I want to take one minute to kind of differentiate between how I heard this growing up and, and how I know the Bible talks about this now. The idea of a sanctified Christian wasn't necessarily a process growing up. It was kind of like you were a Christian, and then you were just expected to fit into this perfect little mold, dressed up in this certain way, saying these certain words, doing these certain things. Um, and, and your sins just kind of like fall aside, like they never were there, and they never happened. Uh, that is the view that God has of you. <laughs> that is not the view that the rest of us have of you, or that you should have of yourself. Your sin does not just completely deplete and disappear and all your problems go away the moment you become a Christian and a follower of Christ. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, they'll never go away until the day you die. They're always going to be there. And why is that important? Because it, it, it fits you into this mold of how does God's grace work in my daily life? What does it actually look like? I think the best story that I've heard to kind of convey this idea <laughs> is about a man named Hiro Onoto. Or if you're like into Japanese culture, they may have said Onoto Hiro. So I'm not going to offend anyone who's into like anime or something like that. I don't want to like flip all that around looking at this row. Um, Hiro Onoto in 1944, at the height of the campaign in the Southeast Asian Sea, particularly in the Philippines, was told by his commanding officer to go into the jungle to do everything he could to impede the enemy's advances, destroy their, um, destroy their uh, airfields, destroy their uh, supply lines, literally like a mosquito, annoy the crap out of them. Until your commanding officer tells you to stop. Do not stop. You are not to surrender and you are not to kill yourself. Which is an important distinction because Japanese would rather kill themselves then surrender in World War II. That was their culture. You're not to do either of those two things. They're going to take away the only escape that he would have had from this. And he did that. He did that until his commanding officer met him in the very field in which he told him to start that campaign in 1944. The only problem is they didn't meet in that field until 1974. So for 30 years, 29 years after the end of World War II, Hironoto took his well-maintained rifle and still had hundreds of rounds of ammo and grenades when he came out of the woods in 1974. And he literally annoyed the ever-living fire out of the Filipino people who lived there for 30 years. He started with four other guys, and they did not make it 30 years. Let's just put it that way. But that's sin. It's not going anywhere. And we're going to have to fight it 
every single day. Why? Because we as a church must work so that our spiritual community is built by God alone, and that starts with your personal sanctification. So, very quickly, as fast as we can, how can we work in the Spirit and build God's house? Let's look at verses 5 through 9. Should be in the right chapter here. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. God, in the sanctification of the believer, calls us to work to build his house as he builds it himself. Think about that for a minute. We are called to be kingdom builders, not for our kingdom, but for God's kingdom. And that phrase, at the end of this passage, just stands out to me. We are God's fellow workers. In this context, he's not calling us his servants, his slaves, We're not paying off a debt. We're not working to please him even in in, in some weird physical sense. We are working with him. And it does please him. Don't get me wrong. We are working with him to accomplish his mission. You have been called. If you think about where you started in life, especially those of you who maybe didn't become a Christian until later in life, what you were called out of, and now you are side by side working with God and what he is calling you to do, that transition is sanctification. That is what he's working out in your life. That is what he's calling you to. And the fact that he would take someone who literally and figuratively spit in his face, hated him, had no desires for him, and basically bring him to the point where they are co-laborers is astounding. It's mind-blowing. How do we effectively do that, though? A couple things. And there's no slides for these subpoints. Subpoint slides get confusing. Realize a spiritual community, and these aren't written so you remember all of them. Apologize for that. Realize that as a spiritual community is uh, realize that a spiritual community is made up of spiritual people, and work towards that end. Work towards that end. The biggest thing, the best thing, the greatest advance in the building of the church that you can make is in the discipline of your own spiritual growth. And as a result of your spiritual discipline, you can share what you've learned through that growth within your spiritual community, this church. That's the work of the Spirit in you. You want to help, first and foremost, if you want to help build God's house as a spiritual believer, work on your own house. Because all this church is, is a group of people coming together to love Jesus together, like Jacob said earlier today. And we bring the spiritual walk of Monday through Saturday into the church on Sunday. If you want to help advance what's going on at King's Cross Church through the Spirit of God, clean the house here first. The soldier illustration I use with Hiro Noto, I said he started with four different people. That was not the only case of that happening. He was just the last Japanese soldier to surrender. Uh, He started with four. One died um, pretty early on, like the end of the 40s. One died in 50-something. 
one surrendered in the 50s, and then another guy either surrendered or passed away, I can't remember, the year before Hiro did. But like as late as the 50s, there was entire units of Japanese soldiers. You're talking about 10 years later, entire units of like 100 soldiers just now surrendering. And that is the image of sin in our life. That is the image of the things that separate us from God. They're going to be there, and we're going to slowly, as spiritual people, maybe get rid of two or three of those things that we're struggling with a year, every couple years, every 10 years. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, in the most discouraging way possible, said that it is extremely rare for a Christian to break any of his habits. Um, Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I hope not. You can put these quotes on the board. John Owen literally wrote the book on killing sin other than the Bible. It's called The Mortification of Sin. There should be a slide for these. He asks the question, do you mortify? That means kill. Do you kill? Do you make it your daily work? Maybe I should add, kill sin, not people. That's sin. Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease, do not stop. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. In the same book, set faith at work on Christ. Set your faith on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy. It is the all-controlling medicine for our sin-sick souls. Live in this, and you will die a conqueror. Yes, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust, your sin, dead at your feet. And then the great sin killer other than Jesus in the Bible, Paul, I die every day. Straight and short and simple, nice and pithy. I die every day. I, I wake up in the morning, he says, and I recognize that I am not perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. I'm not going to pretend to be perfect, that I have issues, and I'm not always successful, but I try to kill those parts of me every single day. Uh, if it's a disagreement, or a struggle in your marriage, if it is, um, I told Alex I wouldn't bring her up too much in the sermon, but I think being married has taught me that I am far more selfish than I ever could have realized, and my mom was right for all 28 years, 29 years of my unmarried life. It has taught me that in ways that no other activity in my life could have possibly taught me. You don't think about another person when you live by yourself. It's just the way it goes, I guess. Uh, And then you try to merge all that together, and she has had her hands full. Let's just put it that way. It started early. I am going to tell one story. It started early. Um, Four o'clock in the morning, the day after we got married, I woke up in bed (laughs) because Alex was going, can you please move over? Okay, so I move over. And then like 4.05, can you please move over? Scooch over a little bit. And then like 4.30 rolls around and I am literally like, if I'm here, the floor is right there. And it's, can you please move over? Will you please just look on the other side of you one time? <laughs> and by the grace of God, that part of our marriage has been sanctified. She's on her side of the bed. I'm on my side of the bed. We're not pushing each other off. But she looks over and there's like five feet of king bed on the other side of her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. I promise you that um, I've, I've been more of the problem than she has, but that's the funniest story I can tell right now. The second thing we can do 
is we can take a humble but honest assessment of the place and purpose of leadership in the life of the spiritual community. I told you these weren't for you to memorize. (laughs) They're long. But we can take a humble and honest assessment of the place and purpose of leadership in the life of the spiritual community. These are in all four verses of the second passage, so we're going to hit them very quickly. What do we think about? And I want to add, Paul is using leadership here. He's using pastors here. Can you go back to the verses real quick, Caleb? Thanks. He's using leadership here. He's using them as an example because the issue is in how they're viewing their leadership. That's the division in their church. That's the strife in their church. I'm of this guy. I'm of this guy. I'm following this guy. So do not look into that. Look into these verses completely through that end. That that is what he's attacking. But you should know that each of these things does apply to the individual believer and their function in the church. The first thing we can understand about leaders is that According to verse 5, they're servants of God's kingdom and not their own. Jacob did not move from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Manchester, New Hampshire to start his little kingdom. This is the worst place on earth to start a kingdom if you're going to do that. He did not do that. That was not his goal. Um, He might seem like he's trying to build a fan club because he fishes for compliments every once in a while, but that's not his goal. It's not what he's trying to do. Number two. Verse 5 also, they're gifts from God to the church. Leaders are gifts from God to the church. The same passage we read in Ephesians speaks to that. He gave some pastors, some teachers, some evangelists. They're gifts. And that applies to you as well. As a spiritual Christian and and a fleshly Christian, you are a gift to the church. Their work relies heavier on a miracle of divine grace than on human industry. Let me explain that to you because I wrote that with big words. The pastor's work, the leader's work in the church relies more on God's power than their own ability to work. Remember that when you're praying for Jacob this week because he's doing a job, he's tasked with something that is physically impossible for him to accomplish on his own. Number four, each pastor shares a common goal with the others and none is greater in importance. That does not mean that some pastors aren't more right than others. That's why there's different churches. That's why you're at this church. I hope you're at the church where you believe overall the church is doing what you feel like it's supposed to do, according to Scripture. But it does exclude one pastor's work in your life from having greater significance in how you look at that pastor, necessarily. Um, H.P. Charles posted this picture, if you want to go to that real quick. I thought it kind of summed this up. Avoid hero worship. Everyone God uses is a jerk and a sinner. Um, That's all of us, (laughs) particularly pastors. God loves to use jerks and sinners. That is evident all throughout the Bible. We don't worship them. We recognize their rightful place. And that is not a deprecating place. That is not a low place, but it is a place below what we often view them in. Lastly, in, 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 in how we work to build this spiritual community, we can recognize that the building of the community and the glory from the community belong entirely to God. Every action of the church, every emotion of the church, everything the church is called to do is to amplify the glory that God receives in this world. The mission of the church is first and foremost worship not necessarily missions. I like what John Piper said. He said, missions exists because worship does not. So why do we go on mission? Why do we 
try to do things in our community, well, because those people should be worshiping God. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's, what we're, that's what we're trying to accomplish. And we worship God through that. The mission of God is to build up a people who worship him. That's that, that last thing in Romans 8 is going to make this a, a forever reality for us. Glorification. Resurrection. Our, our death brings about that final reality for us. Sin is washed away completely. It's not something we're going to struggle with anymore. And God leaves us with this. Paul leaves us with this thought that we are God's field in God's building. We are something that he is working on as he's calling us to be fellow laborers with him. As he's calling us to work, he is working on us. My hope is that this passage in the sermon have clarified the place that we have in the work that God's doing in his church, our spiritual community. I hope we walk away with a fresh understanding of that work that God is doing in each of us through the Spirit and sanctification. And I pray that we have both an understanding of the immense work that your leaders and your pastor has been called to and the lack of ability that they have to be your personal Savior. And mostly, I hope we have all been reminded that the work of the church is to build out the kingdom of God and amplify the glory he is due on this earth. And that is done functionally by joining him on his mission in Manchester so that this spiritual community is built up in this city through God's power alone. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I do thank you for um, your patience with us, Lord, that you, that you are a God who is long-suffering, that he under, you understand our struggles, Lord. And I pray that we would sense the growth that you are causing in our hearts, Lord, that we would focus on being mature and spiritual Christians. And Lord, that you would use that to bless the city of Manchester, Lord, that we would see um, the darkness in the city, Lord, the addiction in the city, the, the, the things in the city that aren't in, in, in step with, with your will, Lord, that we'd see those things washed away as, as the light of this church grows in this city. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.